I have one goal tonight, is to show you how marvelous Jesus is using Leviticus 1. Okay? We'll see if we can do that, okay? Pray for me. Father, thank you for this time to sing great songs to you. How wonderful is our God and Savior. Only the truly redeemed can sing that from their heart. Only those who experienced His saving grace, His love bestowed on us for all of eternity, can proclaim such truth. Lord, these were all plans You laid down from the foundation of the world. You made man in Your image. You gave him everything he needed. And He still rejected You. Down through time, civilization after civilization rejects you. But then you send your son in the midst of the depraved world. The marvelous Savior arrives. He lives an impeccable life, dies a perfect death. And he atones for all those who by faith come to you. Lord, what a blessing. What a joy to sing those songs tonight. Our hearts are full of thanksgiving, Lord. Father, now as we turn to your word and we look at the law and all that you began to set up, Lord, help us see it from the eyes of the New Testament. As new covenant believers, looking back at all of the foreshadowing of what was to come, and may it, may it boggle our minds and cause us to worship you today. That you could illustrate something so beautiful and fulfill it perfectly in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Entitled the sermon, The Substitutionary Sacrifice Offered to God. And as you study the book of Leviticus, this is what it'll be chapter after chapter. But I want to take your, eye, your mind's eye back to the very first year of Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist, of course, had preceded him for several months ahead of him. He was preaching the glories of Christ. He began to tell the people that there was no one like him. In fact, he was not even worthy to unloose the strap of the thong of his sandal. Remember that? He said repeatedly, there is one greater than I coming. And he humbly put himself under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, he was clearly proclaiming that truth. The Bible says the very next day, John chapter 1, verse 29, John saw Jesus coming and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, what a statement. What a profound statement. I just meditated on that thought as I was preparing this message. Millions probably, could we say maybe millions of lambs sacrificed from, from, of course, from Leviticus plus before, but here where the law is established, all pointing towards this glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, none of them recognized him as a Messiah except a few men. As you look at Leviticus chapter 1 as we begin to try to 
understand this statement of behold the Lamb of God, Leviticus is just maybe days, if not just a week or two after the filling of God's glory in the temple. At the end of Exodus, in chapter 40, verse 34, the Bible tells us when the temple was completed, the tent meeting was covered, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It filled it in such a spectacular way that verse 35 says Moses could not even enter the tent meeting because the cloud had settled on it and God had filled the temple with his glory. So Leviticus begins with the people of Israel camped at the base of Mount Sinai. Their heads have been looking up for weeks now, seeing the glory of God on top of the mountain. And now that glory has moved, that Shekinah glory has moved and settled in this earthen-made tabernacle. And what a glorious event that must have been. Moses still becomes a mediator, isn't he? The Bible's going to tell us that God begins to speak to Moses here and instruct him of what the Levitical tribe was to do and how they were to handle and how were they to come in the presence of this holy God. How was this sinful nation to approach this holy God? The instructions in this book are amazing. They're pertaining to sacrifices. Certainly that would include their worship. It was to be worshipfully, uh, they were to worshipfully sacrifice. It contains the teaching of the priesthood and ceremonial, ceremonial cleansing. The Day of Atonement is probably the pinnacle of the book. But it has the feast and holy days and the year of jubilee. All of these are contained while the central theme of the book remains this is a holy God and sinful men have to approach him. So how are you going to do that? How are you going to do that? Well, it was going to be through the shedding of blood. Because without that shedding of blood, no one could be cleansed. No one could come into his presence. No one could come before him. And so the emphasis on this book, I, I know you've read it or maybe tried to read it or maybe didn't make it through it. But the more I've studied it, I see the emphasis on the graciousness of God to dwell with sinners and provide them a way to himself. And it is all going to be flushed out in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer and you read Leviticus, I, I'm not sure what to tell you. <laughs> it's bloody and, and lots of things die. <laughs> but as a believer, you have now the Spirit of God that takes your biblically New Testament trained mind and eyes and it shoots forward to the cross and the completion of all of this. And it's glorious. And one of the things I love so far about studying, I'm just going to do the first chapter today, but is I just sat and worshipped and tears ran down my face as I thought about Jesus in this text. And I hope when I'm done tonight, you will see how marvelous he is indeed. As he will be the final lamb, the final blood shed. And that work of the Lord Jesus Christ will be permanent. And, and think about this, it'll declare, it does declare the holiness of the elect forever. <laughs> Not for a year, but Christ's death for the elect, his blood will declare us holy for eternity. That's staggering, isn't it? Well, let's look at quick thoughts here this morning. Five of them were this evening. God speaks and instructs from his holy dwelling. 
Look with me at verse 1. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meetings. Well, God's glory is streaming out of the holies of holies, right? He's now filled this thing and in such a spectacular way. I, I, in some ways I want to see it, but I want to see Christ more because I think he's even greater than that. But it, but it had to be fascinating to see this tent of meetings, this tabernacle made of skins and poles all put together and the glory of the Shekinah glory shining beams through this thing as the glory of the Lord rests on top of the bema seat, top of the mercy seat. I think the only way to really understand it, and the New Testament always gives us a clearer view, is to look at the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to remind you of some verses. Because you can say, well, what does that look like? In our mind's eye, we try to make light. We try to think of all of that. But Matthew 17, 2, this is Jesus transfigured in front of the disciples. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. Now think about this. And his faith, face shone like the sun. Now, now what color is that? Can you imagine going down to Sherwin-Williams and say, hey, what color can I get you for your paint? Well, I want the color of the sun. <laughs> can you give me such a bright paint that it's like the sun? I mean, we don't have a color like that, do we? This is, <laughs> this is beyond magnificence, isn't it? You go out there and go stare at the sun and, you know, you'll be blind, right? I mean, we've got to think about how glorious and how brilliant this is. And then the, next, the rest of the verse says, His garments became like white as light. Again, try to go get that paint. Ask for that color down at Home Depot. Can you give me the color of light? I mean, what would they give you? This is a brilliant reflection of the purity of God. All coming from the Lord Jesus Christ in such an incredible way. Second Peter Chapter 1, verse 17, Peter's reaccounting this, and he's using that account to say, as glorious as that was, the word of God is still better, more sure. But it's still a glorious account. He says, For when, we, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such as utterances as this was made to him by the, and he uses this term, the majestic glory. He doesn't say he looked and saw the Father. He said, it was made by the majestic glory. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's radiance. It's, it's, it's his essence. It's all in who he is. And, and it gets translated down into this brightest of lights. That's what's filling the temple. When Moses hears God calling him. Now think about this. Moses had experienced the glory of God in several times, right? Starting with a burning bush. There are those bushes burning and it won't burn up and it's certainly a reflection of the glory of God. And there God speaks to him. He spent many days and nights in the presence of God on Mount Sinai. But now God is filling this earthly dwelling place, the tabernacle now going to be combined with the Ten of Meetings, which reflects his heavenly kingdom, his heavenly throne, right? His heavenly tabernacle and here he is calling Moses into this conversation with him into this glorious light I don't know about you but how do you understand the manner in which God speaks to Moses it, it just for the sake of argument 
Think about Moses and walking in the presence of that. He certainly couldn't go into the most holy places, but he could be outside the tabernacle, outside the tent of meetings, and there there's kind of glorious shining through. How would, you, how would you present yourself? How would you walk up and talk to him? First of all, would you be full of fear? <laughs> maybe so. Maybe uh, an afraid fear. Maybe an awe fear. Maybe you would sense his power. A lot of people I talk to see God as unapproachable and they see the Old Testament and they go, oh, God's an angry God. It's powerful. People die when they get next to him. How would you approach him? I, I, what I love is, is that we, with our New, Pres- New Testament perspective, being under the New Covenant, we come at this completely different, don't we? In fact, we understand that God has revealed his complete glory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at John 1 with me real quick. This is just such a good reminder. And certainly God does dwell in an unapproachable light, Paul tells Timothy as he writes the letters to him. But Jesus Christ is the full explanation, isn't he? John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And here's what he says, we beheld his glory. He's talking about a lot of things. Number one, I think he's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. There, John was there, right? He saw him transfigured, uh, shown like the brightness of the sun. So doubtlessly just completely uh, unable to stare into his glory. But they watched so many other things that marked his glory. His ability to heal his ability to make the dead alive. <laughs> they see him beat death and sin and Satan. There's so many things that would have marked this glory that they saw. But certainly, it has to be also referring to this incredible glory that came upon the Lord at his transfiguration. And he has the glory as the only begotten of the Father. And what that simply means is he's the only one who shares the glory with the Father. Nobody else has this glory. You can't attain this on your own. You can't get this. This is something only the Father and the Son have. And notice how he expresses how he sees it now. Probably much different before John came to faith. He sees it full of grace and truth. See, we don't come to the Father fearful. We we don't come to him afraid of what he's going to do. We've been saved by him. We've We've known and experienced his love through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see him full of grace and truth. John testified about him, verse 15, cried out, This is the one whom I've said, he who comes after me is higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Talks about the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 16, for the fullness we have already received, grace upon grace. So this glorious, majestic, glorious Savior is keeps talks about him as grace, grace, grace. But then he goes further. For the law was given to Moses. Grace and truth were realized in Jesus Christ. That's my, under, that's my verse that helps me translate and teach Leviticus right there. That verse right there. The law was given to Moses. Grace and truth were realized in Jesus Christ. Oh, I look at Leviticus completely different now all through the lenses of the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then look at verse 18. This is glorious to us as New Testament Christians, right? No one has seen the Father at any time, 
the only begotten of God, that's Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father. Everything the Father has, he has. It's a, it's a unique statement of his glory and shared glory with the Father. And then it says this phrase, he has explained him. So there, I, I would say this, as New Testament Christians, there's no other way to understand the book of Leviticus other than through the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ, through his life. I think that's beautiful, and it helps me enjoy this book in such a great way. Now, despite the law and the power of the Shekinah glory, I have come to believe that this great display here that's happening in this verse is really a display of the love and grace of God, even in this time before Christ. I think this holy God is full of grace because of this. He's coming down to be with sinners. (laughs) He doesn't have to do that. This holy God is residing with sinful people. I mean, that's a wow, isn't it? He's coming down among these people. What love he shows here, he represents here, that the heart of God, think about this, the heart of God desires his own joy to be poured out on mankind. That's the heart of God. He did not have to do this. Once he sealed the garden off, that could have been it. Let them all die in their sins. But here he is. This majestic, glorious God dwelling with sinners. I mean, you know the story, right? Started in the garden. There they rejected him. Works its way to the golden calf. Reject him again. And mankind has repeatedly rejected God. And yet here he is. Here he is in the midst of this nation, settled down in the desert at the foot of Mount Sinai, providing a way to himself so that those he created, he can have a relationship with them. That's love. That is undaunting love, isn't it? And this is the only way for us to understand from the new covenant, this book, is we begin to realize he had a greater plan, didn't he? This was all pointing to something so great. Notice the Lord calls to Moses in verse 1 there. Isn't that the way the Lord works? He always calls to us, right? People think, oh, I called out to Jesus and he saved me. I'm glad you did that. (laughs) But it was always God coming after you. That's what he does. He calls out to Moses. Here, his mediator, he calls to him. And he's always pursuing his own, isn't he? Look at the first part of chapter 2. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them. (laughs) Once again, here God chooses to address the people of Israel. The very ones who just shortly ago built a golden calf to replace him with it. (laughs) I want to talk about replacement theology. (laughs) We're going to replace you, God, because we don't know what's going on on the mountain. We're going to use this golden calf. But notice... God always chooses to address his people through a mediator. Boy, he's telling us something there, isn't he? And it is through God speaking here that he tells us, look, you you can't see my face. You can can hear my voice maybe in certain situations, but I'm always going to come through the mediator. That's his plan. I'm always going to have a mediator. Paul says that mediator is Jesus Christ our Lord. Second thought, we begin to see the process of how to get to God. Number two, God exhausts his wrath upon the sacrifice. 
God exhausts his wrath upon the sacrifice. Look at the end of verse 2. When any man of you bring an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. Well, first offerings spoken of here in Leviticus are those which are completely consumed in sacrifice. We'll see that. We'll see some different offerings later in the book, but these first ones are, are that way. And so that means God is establishing that something innocent should completely take the place of the sinner and bear the full weight of God's wrath. That's what Leviticus is going to tell us right here. Something other than the sinner, something innocent, has to take the place of that sinner and bear the full wrath of God. So in these cases, everything about the animal was to be consumed. Horns, hoofs, bone, skin, hair, meat, all of that, everything was to be substituted for this sinner. And God is prescribing the details of the atonement in this text and displaying the cost, what it costs this innocent animal to ransom someone from their sins, even if it was temporary at this point. Now, remember it is a sovereign God that sinners are dealing with here. But his love, his, his love is so clear here. I've talked to so many young people that read through the book of Le- Leviticus, and they just see, they see a different God than, than what I want them to see. I want them to see him being gracious. He could have said, no, you're going to die for your own sins. So he's already displaying this beautiful love as he has chosen a sacrifice, a substitute that was all foreshadowing the perfect substitute. Now, even in the choice of the sacrificial animal, God was showing his kindness to the nation, right? Notice that he doesn't ask them to buy or bring some rare or hard-to-find animal. Can you imagine? Go get a T-Rex, and I want him offered to me. Or something venomous, right? Or something that would be difficult to handle, or something that's just every day around, you know? Go get a badger. I think this is just gracious of God. Notice he directs them first to oxen and cattle, sheep, goats, and birds. These are things they would have ready on hand, right? They're right there. This is the graciousness of God. I'm not asking you to go with something you don't have. I'm asking you to bring something that you do have. But that's like God, right? He says salvation is near to you. This is how he works. This is how gracious he is to them. God's word says this type of sacrifice shows his graciousness to them. Think about these animals. <laughs> they would have been grazing there, maybe down by the river. Later in Israel's life, they may have been in the fields and the lilies of Sharon, this ground over west towards the Mediterranean, what was known for just the depth of its fertileness. This is where they selected the sacrifices that were pleasing to God. This is the graciousness of God to say, take those things that you have and bring them to me. And let them be a substitute for your sins. Perhaps, as you think about that a little bit, there's a glimpse of the Redeemer, right? A glimpse of the Redeemer tells us that he, He's there, He's close to us. He, he desires us to have joy and blessedness to see that the Father has provided sacrifice for us. And, and I see that in this. It, it was... It was personal in a lot of ways. 
They didn't have the massive ranches that they have today where you run thousands and thousands of cattle and sell it to you know, Walmart or wherever. And everybody had their personal farms, right? They had their personal livestock, mostly. You knew these animals. Passover time, you were to select one of these lambs and bring them into your home and let them live with you. Let them be with you. And then they were to sacrificed, be sacrificed for you. In the ancient world at this time, all these animals would have had horns on them. It's not till even recent times within the last century or so that we've learned to uh, breed cattle and, and livestock without horns. They're called, they're called pulled now. It's a, it's a cow without horns um, now. But most of the time in the ancient world, horns meant power and authority. And so these things were precious to them. They put a lot of work into it. Breeding programs even back then were important. You bred to have good livestock, good meat producers, good wool producers. You bred for that. And yet God said, take those things close to you. See, all this points to Jesus Christ, who is the power and wisdom of God, isn't it? You see the wisdom of God and you see the power of God in all of this because these animals were only there to be a substitute temporarily to where Christ could get there. And then Jesus Christ, the power and wisdom of God, at one point in history, steps out of heaven. As we sing, he had breathed the air of heaven and he comes to breathe the dust of earth. He, he comes down here and you see his glory and his power that he would be that final lamb. Look at verse 3. If his offering is burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meetings that he may be acceptable before the Lord. It's to be a male oxen right here in this part of this text. And the male because it represented the second Adam. The first Adam had brought a curse onto the earth. And the second Adam was to reverse that curse. And so this was to be a male animal from the oxen or sheep or birds. And it was to be unblemished. And of course, again, this foreshadows the coming of Christ who will offer himself to the church to make us blameless and holy and without spot or wrinkle. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27. That great marriage passage but speaks of the church. Now, because the sacrifice that, that is given receives, think about this, receives the full wrath of God, it must be unblemished to be accepted. You cannot bring the one-legged lamb, you know, or three-legged lamb, missing one leg, excuse me, or the spotted lamb, or the uh, eye out on the oxen. They could not come. It had to be one that was unblemished. And again, as those under the new covenant, they're can only be one who fits that command, right? There can be only one who fulfills that with no defect, unblemished. And we look towards this and we see when you think about things, you study those statements, bring one without defect, unblemished. It speaks of the impeccability of the Lord Jesus Christ, the flawlessness of our Savior. This is what it points towards. You say, Scott, well, how, how could he not have been flawless? He was God. And yet he was man, wasn't he? Right? This perfect natures of God and man blended together with, with perfection and impeccability. And some seem to think that, oh, he, 
He was God, so there was no way he would sin. But yet the Bible says he was tempted in all ways. In fact, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 through 9, speaking of his humanity, says this, all, although he was a son, listen to this, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He kept doing what was right even while suffering. Think about this. Do you think Satan thought he could sin? He tried everything he could for 40 days and 40 nights. Think the Pharisees thought he was a sinner? Absolutely. And yet the Bible says he learned obedience from the things he suffered and having been made, here's the word I'm after, having been made perfect. The idea is showed, having been shown through those 33 years of life that he was impeccable, perfect. He was the perfect Lamb of God. He became to all those who obey him, listen to this, the source of eternal life. Our Lord grew in obedience. He grew to obey God and follow that because he was a little boy. He was a little baby and a little boy. And he began to, in his humanity, live out that perfection so he would be our sacrifice. Later, Hebrews 7, 28 says this, For the law appoints men as high priests who, who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son, and listen to this phrase, made perfect forever. Satan knew this, and so he came after him at the beginning of his ministry in order to try to get him to sin. Notice in verse 3 we find this phrase, the doorway to the tent of meetings. I thought this is, a, is absolutely interesting. As one would have entered the courtyard of the tabernacle, the altar would have been near the doorway to the holy place, right? You would have seen that. The altar would have been the first object probably that met your eye as a worshiper, as one who was coming in to offer. And there the priest would meet you and lead this offerer to the sacrifice of the altar here. And the presenting of the sacrifice would have displayed, this is very important, the worshiper's intent to bring an object into the presence of God. Now you can imagine as you come through that courtyard uh, screen or, or curtains and you walk through that leading your your offering before them, and, and certainly early on, while the Lord was still residing among them, Shekinah glory is blazing in the, the Holy of Holies, and you're leading in your lamb or your oxen or your turtle dove in your hands before this holy God. Wouldn't that have been an amazing thing? Doubtlessly, the offerer, the offerer walked silently, maybe with holy awe to the door of the tabernacle as he prepared to meet his God and offer a sacrifice for his sins. Think about this. When Christ appeared as a high priest to come for good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. But here in this text, this is a human-made tabernacle, and yet there's still the glory of God there. But Jesus now takes his own blood in the New Testament. He goes to a tabernacle not made by hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and he doesn't come with blood of goats and calves, but he comes with his own blood and enters the most holy place to obtain eternal redemption for us. It's astounding. It's all being played out by this nation of Israel, all something that's looking forward to something greater. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18 says, For through him we have both access into the Spirit and to the Father. 
But in these verses, you can see this clear act of offering a sacrifice. This is what he's doing. In time, of course, Israel failed because they looked at this as ritual, not worship. They did not see the power of God that could hold off their sins until the Messiah came and they fell away and began to worship false gods. And I think when you think about this, just as this still gets formed, I mean, I love this first chapter because this is the brand new temple. This is the, the first people coming in with their, their sacrificial animals. And, and they had to, think about this, they had to believe, and I'm going to talk about this in a moment, by faith that that animal was going to hold off the judgment of God. So how do you come to him? How do you come to him? What are you dependent upon when you come in the presence of a holy God? Church attendance? You're a pretty good person? See, what's interesting is we'll see it didn't matter what your economic status was, what your ethnic background really was. Later, even others could worship through the Jews in certain ways. It mattered what you brought, what you put your faith in when you came before this holy God. Can your New Testament trained mind see that in the fullness of time, Christ came silently as a lamb led to the slaughter? And there, there on that final altar of the cross, the Lord Jesus became the perfect substitute and he entered into this tabernacle, not made with hands, but with his own blood to provide a redemption. That scene to me is graphic as I think about this and look at the nation of Israel to see what it looked forward to. Well, here's what I'm alluding to, point three. The sacrifice was an act of faith. At this point, it was an act of faith. It, the nation had realized that God had forgiven them the, from the whole golden calf issue. That was a mess. They realized that God was going to dwell with them. He gave them the plans of the tabernacle. Remember, Moses says, we're not going if you don't come. And God says, I will come, and my glory will be with you. And so they're, they're at least in the beginning days, and we can, you can follow this through, through much of the early history Many of the nation of Israel believed this, and they believed by faith. Look at verse 4. Look what he had to do. He, had, he, he shall lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering. Early on, this is the sacrificer himself, right? He will lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering that he may be accepted for him to make an atonement on his behalf. The Hebrew phrase carries the idea that he will lean on the head of the sacrifice. He will lean on it. See, this is an act of faith by the worshiper, right? You mean to tell me that this animal will hold off the wrath of God at least for a year, and I will not get what I deserve? See, there was an act of faith here, wasn't there? They had to put their hands on this animal. And they had to believe that this animal was a sacrifice for themselves to pardon their, albeit temporarily, had to pardon their sins. And so there's an act of faith that takes place here. And in a sense, he, he has agreed, this, this worshiper has agreed that he deserves what the animal's going to get, but he's going to do it God's way and he's going to lean on that animal to be his atonement. Some interesting language throughout the Psalms, and I'm picking it up more and more now as I study 
the Pentateuch and then look into the Psalms, there's a phrase in Psalms 88, 7 that says this, your wrath has rested upon me. It's, it's very similar root word to the Hebrew word there. Your wrath has leaned upon me. This is what the idea was. Lean on this animal. Lean on this substitutionary lamb and have faith that I will judge it instead of you. And so, Christians, think about that. We lean our soul on the same person whom God has leaned his wrath on. Isn't that amazing? We lean our soul upon the same one that God leaned his wrath upon so we can have an eternal redemption with him. Well, think about this. When the worshiper has finished leaning on the head of the animal, he simply left his sins there. That was the idea here, is conveying that by the laying on of hands on the sacrifice, that he believed by faith that God pardoned him temporarily, but he believed that. And his part was done, right? His part was done. Now, guess what the part had to play out? The victim. <laughs> the innocent animal fell into the hands of a wrathful God. He falls as an innocent animal before the judgment of God. The worshiper would return home. He would believe that God had accepted his sacrifice. He believed that he, he, he was atoned for his sins. And by faith, he believed he would be right with God. At least that year, he believed temporarily that he would be all right with God. Because nothing of his justification rested on his own abilities. I mean, think about this. this is, there is a picture of justification here. His sins, his sin, he is declared righteous, though temporarily. This isn't the justification of the New Testament. He he's, has justification temporarily because God leans upon the sacrifice instead of leaning upon him. But he knows this because he didn't come with his own abilities. He put his hands, he recognized he was a sinner. He puts his hands on the lamb, puts his hands on the ox or the turtle dove. And he backs away knowing this is not because of my character. This is not because of my conduct. This is not because I've done something. I'm completely dependent upon this lamb who will be sacrificed for me. See, you can see this, can't you? Isn't this beautiful? Look at verse 5. The Bible says, He shall slay the young bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around the altar that, it, that is at the doorway of the Ten of Meetings. So clearly the animal is killed in the presence of the Lord. He's right there. The kind of glory is in the tabernacle right before them. And now an incredible, solemn sight takes place. The priest takes this blood. He comes forward towards the altar. He has a bowl in his hand at the altar that contains this warm, crimson blood from this animal. And in the blood is life. Think about that. In the blood is, is life. It was the life of that animal given for that person. And the blood, he comes forward and brings it before the Lord. And it represents a living soul, a sinner who needs forgiveness. And that sinner is completely dependent on the life blood that was in that animal. And then the blood is sprinkled around the altar and on the side of the altar 
And the life that was taken from that one gives life to the one who deserves the stroke of God's wrath, right? At least temporarily. But for us in the New Testament, we know he did that once. He carried his own blood into a tabernacle not made by hands for our eternal redemption. But the scene is clear here, isn't it? Blood has, this is not new, blood has not only here been the one that would cover you from death. They've already seen this, haven't they? They're about ready to leave Exodus. The last plague is coming. The death angel is coming. They're told to take this lamb, their personal lamb, picked out, unblemished, male, without spot or wrinkle, brought into their home, lived with them. And then the night before, they are to slay this and paint the blood on the doorpost. And they are consume this lamb, leave nothing left over. And the death angel would pass by. And so here, the blood on the altar and its sides represents a substitutionary death that forfeited its life for another. You have to think of Isaiah 53, don't you? Verse 12 says, Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many, and he interceded for the transgressor. You see this whole scene right here in the book of Leviticus, don't you? Forethought, the unblemished sacrifice must be revealed to be perfect. Verses 6 to 13, we begin to see a series of events. I won't read all of this, this verses here and there as I go through this, but now this animal is in front of the executioner, in a sense. The animal has died, its blood has been spilled, it's been sprinkled on the altar, and now the uh, excuse me, uh, executioner comes and in a sense, fillets the animal. The skin is torn away, as you see there in verse 6, torn away from the animal, so that the sacrifice would be completely exposed, be bare before its beholder. There can be no blemishes, even as the skin comes off. The skin was a temporary covering. We saw that here. We see it also in the garden. There was a temporary covering. Animals were sacrificed in order to cover Adam and Eve, excuse me, in chapter 3, verse 21 in Genesis and so this skin now is moved, and, and God is there to witness the most inner parts of this animal. And they are to be offered to him. See, this represents a clear effects of sin that disunifies and separates, because now this animal is carved up, right? In the end, you kind of have a pile of an animal with entrails and legs and pieces of meat there on the altar that's going to be consumed by fire. But God's looking in, right? And the Bible says in Hebrews that he has the ability to look to the joint and to the marrow. And, and that term, you ever thought why, they, why the writer of Hebrews used that term? Because it comes from this sacrificial system. That lamb, that oxen was to be cut all the way down and cut part, even down to the bone and the marrow, and to be opened before God before it was consumed. Because God's looking intently to make sure the one sacrificed can atone for the sins. And that's Christ, isn't it? He proved to be the perfect sacrifice. But if something else is offered, some, some other works-based righteousness that you come up with, some, some other thing that you put before God, it will be filleted before God. He'll see that that was a works righteousness. You came on your own strength. You thought you were good enough. You did this and you did that. He will fillet that before him and he will see that it is unacceptable. And this is why we preach over and over, Christ plus anything is nothing. And that's what he's looking at. 
Because remember, this is all looking forward to. And, and so many things, and I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit later, but, but I, what I think this is telling us is God examined the Son. He examined Him to see His perfection as one who would die for us. And every aspect of Christ's life, every aspect, His thought life, the way He spoke, the way He dealt with people, every aspect of His life was pure. And He accepted that sacrifice. He slayed Him on our behalf. Look at verse 7 with me. Six hit skinned and cut into pieces. Seven, the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. The fire often represents judgment of God, doesn't it? Or the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. We see this often. And so here comes the wrath of God to consume this. The wrath of God came down and consumed the Lord Jesus Christ in a sense. But Christ was the perfect substitute and When he was consumed, he was found to be without blemish. Verse 8, And Aaron's sons and the priests shall arrange the pieces in the head and the suet, that's the fat, over the wood which is on the fire, that it is on the altar. Again, I believe the head and the fat, the suet here, it calls it here, but this is probably the fat around the kidney. It represents both the outward and the inward. So they're to arrange this where the outward is seen and the inward is seen of this animal. Fat is, up the, is, is probably the most in, hidden part of the inside of this animal. Way up above the kidneys, in behind them grows this little cluster of fat, some of the sweetest fat. If you ever, have ever killed anything, you want that fat. You want to grind that into your hamburger. It's, just a, it's a completely beautiful fat that you want in there. I'm getting to be hungry thinking about it. Um, And that hidden way up in there needed to be laid out before God. Notice he's saying, look, I I want everything offered to me because I can see the outside and I can see the inside. And so Christ was offered body and soul and was placed on the altar of the cross and he endured the fire of God's judgment, didn't he? He endured that. Fat always represents a sweet offering to the Lord. That's that innermost love for God. That's that sweet aroma that goes up to him, a heart, an inside that belongs to him, a heart that's right with God that always brings a sweet aroma. Look at verse 9. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, and offering it by fire of a smooth aroma to the Lord. Here again, the legs and the intestines represent an outward and inward defilement, first of all, of man, right? These things have waste in them, so they're to be washed, and often that waste would end up on the legs, and so the legs and the entrails are to be washed, and it really does show that man was defiled in in one way, but once they're washed, it represents this undefiled nature of Christ. It represents Christ's body and soul as holy and free from impurities, and now this perfect substitute and sacrifice becomes this sweet aroma to God. And listen, when this was done out of faith and done according to his instructions, God was extremely pleased with every one of these sacrifices. But nothing pleased him more than his perfect son's death. What an amazing sweet aroma that would have been. The term sweet aroma is used over and over in Leviticus and throughout the law. We'll see it over and over. 
to us and the Christians in the New Testament. It's used also of how we should walk like Jesus walked. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself for us. And listen to this. An offering, a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Boy, he, God loved the offering of his son. It was beautiful to him. It was the perfect plan. Look at verse 10 with me. But if his offering is of, from the flock of the sheep or the goats, for a burnt offering, he shall offer a male without blemish. In the ancient world, the wealthier offered oxen. This is, I think, what this believes. I read a lot on this. I said, why does he start with oxen or cattle? And then he works to sheep and turtle doves. Um, but here I believe it probably just refers to there was different people in different economic classes, right? The, the wealthy would often select an oxen out of their herd, and they would offer that, and the middle class more of the lamb or the goat. But I, what I think I see again is the graciousness of God. God graciously left the sacrifice open to the different economic classes that were among the nation. And he allowed them to bring within their own uh, resources what was fitting isn't that what we say sometimes? Some of our pastors will get up and they'll say, hey, give according to what God has given to you. This is what God was doing. If you were on the poor side or maybe a slave or indentured servant to someone, there's no way you had an ox to bring. You were usually standing behind somebody else's ox. <laughs> but you could afford a turtle dove. And so we see later where he allows it to happen. But notice Christ broke through all the divisions of humanity, right? He brings all into equality through the standing. Colossians 3, 11 says there's no distinction between the Greek and the Jew, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, the barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, all. Uh, but Christ is in all and in all. So he brings all together because he's in that. And even here, think about the kindness of him. He gives the three illustrations of where you are, you can still come and have your sins atone temporarily. So the lamb, I think, best represents Christ. Is the bulk of the people, most likely. And the lamb represented the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John the Baptist calls out, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look at verse 11. He shall lay it on the side of the altar north before the Lord. And Aaron's sons and the priest shall sprinkle his blood around the altar. Now it's kind of repeating again what took place already. But there is one phrase here, and I just thought I would mention it because I know before I get off the pulpit, someone will come up and say something about it, a killing of the sacrifice on the north side of the altar. And then, you know, you read a little bit on this, and people come up with the craziest ideas. Well, this is because Jesus was north of Jerusalem where he served. This is why this is done. No, when you're killing a bunch of animals, there's a process. <laughs> and uh, get that thing over on this side because the next ones are coming and so forth. I think that's all that is about. It doesn't make any other sense because Jesus dies his death is sufficient for all walks of life. He'll draw all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so a lot of people make a big thing about that. I think it's just there was a lot going on. I mean, there's two million people, two to four million people at this time preparing to sacrifice. And so this was a lot of work. And so this was to be done on the north side. There's other places in the scripture says to do it on the east side. So uh, maybe the way the tabernacle was set up at times. Verse 12 and 13. He shall then cut into the pieces with its head and its suet, the fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood and which is on the fire that is on the altar. 
and entrails. However, the legs shall be washed with water, and the priest shall offer it up, and it shall be offered up in smoke on the altar, and it's burning offering, and they offer by, offering by the fire of a smooth, soothing, excuse me, aroma of the Lord. Again, there's no change in handling the lamb different than the sacrifice. And then finally, just to run this up, just point five, and I thought this was, I've already talked about this, but worth looking at for a second. Um, Christ's substitutionary sacrifice was once, and then I put this little phrase in the title, and for all. It was once and for all. And the beauty of God's people has been marked by diversity. And you'll notice there in verse 14, it says, but if this offering is of a burnt offering of birds, this would be the turtle dove from somebody who is not in the economic class of the others, then he shall bring his offering. And and again, it goes right kind of down through the exact same things and yet a little bit different because of the handering of the feathers and so forth. But, but it tells us that God has a diversity among his people. He has an economic diversity. And later on, there's an ethnic diversity that's brought into it. And, and everything is brought together in unity in Jesus Christ. Our, our church, like many doctrinally sound churches and Christ-centered churches, is, very, is diverse, isn't it? There's some here that are members of our church that God has entrusted wealth with. And I praise the Lord for that. He gives some people wealth and entrusts them to handle that wealth for His glory. The majority of churches, at least that I have been around and spent many years in ministry, are mostly middle class economically. And yet they're your best givers in, in most surveys. They give out of what God has given them. And yet a church opens its arms to those less fortunate and we have those among us as well who struggle a little more. We have a great set of deacons who work very hard to help some of our struggling families and those, but they, they give and they're serving. And some of, some of our, people, our people here have gone through some difficult things and you find them at work days and you find them serving and helping with children and giving everything they have. And see, that's what Christ does. He, he brings those classes together. <laughs> the world wants to get rid of class systems. I remember the first time I went into India they tried to disparage or, or talk down that there were class systems there. And oh my goodness, you get off the plane and there's class systems everywhere. God takes classes and puts them together in their brothers and, and sisters in Christ. And we love each other and we sit next to each other and we serve one another. And we care for one another and we give together. Because God brings it together. And as you look at the sacrificial system, just as I finish this, God took all of his people, no matter where they came from. He dwelt among them. He gave them a way to himself. Temporarily. Temporarily forgiving their sins. But he made a way. And if that person came by faith and believed that God would forgive him and put their faith in the one who would crush the head of the serpent, that God was going to send that one, that Old Testament saint you will meet in heaven. And I... I imagine there's many of them that really, truly trusted in God. Oh, they're sure we can go on. As the time goes on, you'll see lots of Israel turn away from God. But there were those. And think about that head of that family who walked in and leaned on that animal, believing God's word, that this animal would atone for my sins and God would accept it. God was pleased with that. And it was a sweet aroma to him. Look, 
Put your hands on Jesus. Put your hands on the Word. Believe Him for salvation and believe Him for every day. He's for our marriages. He's for everything we do. And it's a sweet aroma when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this first chapter, Lord. It really sets the tone of the rest of the book. Though, Lord, we may sweep a little faster through this book, um, we see how you designed a way to come to you. A holy God living among a sinful people. How were they going to have their sins atoned? How would this angry God at sin, but loving his people, deal with them? How would he have a relationship with them and travel through the desert and into the promised land eventually? It was through sacrifice of a substitute. And Lord, this all points, as we've made clear this this evening, I think, that it all points to a Lord Jesus Christ who is the final lamb. And we thank you, Lord, that we can put our faith, we can lean completely on that lamb bringing nothing of ourselves, not depending on our own works righteousness or our morality or anything else, we can lean fully on that Lamb, Jesus Christ, and know that our sins are atoned for. Lord, that, that is such peace that passes all understanding. And so, Lord, I pray that each and every one of us that are listening to this message and hearing the Word of God, that we remind ourselves tonight that we lean on the Lamb He is our perfect sacrifice. Lord, thank you for accepting his blood and washing away our past, present, and future sins and giving us an eternal redemption. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.